You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was preaching, and it dawned on me that every statement that happens after a but or however is usually negates the statement that was made previous to the but or however. So in life, when we make a statement of encouragement or whatever it is that we say to our children or to our friends or to whoever, if we add a but in the middle, we are negating, most likely we're negating what we just said. And so I went on this kind of tirade on how the gospel does not contain buts, ifs, howevers, maybes, and I was kind of all worked up up here, and I was really preaching from my heart, and from what I'm told, the front row in both sections started laughing at me because I kept saying the word but, and then I added to that that there's no buts, there's just periods when it comes to the gospel. So this mature, godly, you know, the people who sit up in the front, they're supposed to be, you know, the holiest of people, the most educated, the closest to the Lord. They just couldn't stop laughing because I kept using the word but. And that's usually the way it goes when it comes to sharing the gospel. And Paul experiences that to some extent in the book of Romans, because especially in chapters 4 through 11, Paul is trying in every way possible to share the good news of nothing but Jesus. And I feel his pain, because I so desperately want us, want me, want my family, want our church family to get the gospel, to get Jesus, for it to sink deep into our souls, deep into our hearts, and change our lives. Maybe you've been a Christian all of your life, and you need a gospel awakening. That's what the Reformation was all about. We're coming up on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the door. And that was a gospel awakening, and many of us need that. And so Paul is striving to share the gospel in any way he possibly can in these chapters. Because when you think about it, he only spends a couple of chapters on our sin, because that's really all he needs to spend. So in chapter 1, he talks about the unrighteousness of man, of man's sin, of man's heinous sinning, of our willful sinning. And then in chapter 2, he speaks of our self-righteousness. It's the other side of the coin. On one side of the coin is unrighteousness. On the other side of the coin is self-righteousness. Some of us need to be saved from our badness, our unrighteousness. Some of us need to be saved from our goodness, from what Luther called our damnable good works. Some of us need to be saved from that. So then in chapter 3, he begins to unpack this incredible doctrine, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Luther said that this is the most important doctrine of the church, that the church rises and falls on this one doctrine, on the doctrine of justification, that when Jesus died on the cross, that he died for our sins. Let that shock you this morning. So the sins that you committed this past week, 
The sins that I committed, the sins that you committed with the words that you speak, the thoughts in your mind, the disbelief in our hearts, when it's all around us, the proof is all around us, and I don't know about you, but I doubt. Our doubt, our disbelief, our confusion, regardless of what that looks like, that he died for our sins, that he pardoned us, that our sins are as far as the east is from the west, that the sins that we can't forget, he can't remember. Those sins, that's justification, but that's just half of it. The other half of it is that we are given Christ's righteousness. So we are given not half of his righteousness because all other righteousness is either self-righteousness or it's righteousness that is filthy rags. So he gives us Christ's righteousness. So not only is it just as if I had never sinned when we're forgiven, but it's just as if I had always obeyed. And so chapter 3 and chapter 4 is all about that great doctrine. And you would think that after that would be a to-do list. But that's not what happens. So Paul has this chapters 1 through 3, which is the diagnosis of the human race. And chapters 4 through 11 is the deliverance of the human race. And chapters 12 through 16, it's not until chapter 12 that he begins to describe a description of what a Christian's life will begin to look like. And it's no wonder that when he comes to the end of this section, this gospel section, this section on deliverance in chapter 4 through 11, when he finally comes to the end, after he has unpacked and explored every possible way he could think of to share the gospel, he finally says this in chapter 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. In other words, Paul is saying, I haven't even scratched the surface of nothing but Jesus. I haven't even scratched the surface. I haven't used enough words to possibly do justice to what Jesus did for us. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Reminds me of the old hymn, The Love of God. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bow down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned him from sin. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe, if every man were a writer by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. In other words, if the entire ocean were the ink 
in which we all dipped our pens. If all of us were writers, all of us were scribes, we wouldn't begin to exhaust nothing but Jesus. His love for us. His unconditional grace for us. Are you not on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ? Has he not changed your life? Without him, there's no hope. Are we not alive? Do you need a gospel awakening in your life? You may have been a Christian all of your life, but you've forgotten Jesus. Do you need to be reawakened? I need him more today than I needed him the day that I was, became a Christian. I need him more in my marriage. I need him more in my parenting. I need him more in my friendships, in my words, in my thoughts, in my leadership. I need Jesus more today, more and more and more of him. His grace is enough for me. And so in Romans 5, Paul's next way of impressing the gospel on our hearts is to use Adam, the very first man created, as an example. And the use of Adam, stories about Adam, illustrations using Adam are extremely rare in Scripture. Besides Genesis, Adam's not really treated until Romans 5. Paul treats Adam in many different ways. And so we have this passage of Scripture in Romans 5, verse 12. So let's begin reading there. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type or an example of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now from here to the end of the chapter is a summary of what you just heard. Because what you just heard, as I'm going to talk about in a minute, is very dense, very thick. But it's very straightforward from here on out. So listen. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Read that again. Where sin increased, grace was more. Grace abounded all the more. Hyper-grace abounded, literally. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also reigned through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. One act, 
One action changes everything. You know, um, my son, my oldest son, when he was, he must have been eight or nine years old, we went to an amusement park, and there was a roller coaster that we were all riding, and it was my family, my brother's family, my parents were there, and uh, my son, Marky, he must have been eight or nine years old, and he didn't want to ride this roller coaster. In fact, he was gripped with fear, and he was really upset, crying, begging to not go on. And so what did I do as a loving father? I mean, it's amazing when I look back at some of my parenting then compared to now. I mean, now if my youngest son said he didn't want to ride the roller coaster, I'd be like, okay, just stay here. We'll be back in an hour. Um, (laughs) You know, don't get lost. Don't let anybody take you. We'll be right back. But then, I mean, I decided we were going to fight that battle. And so for the next, I am not exaggerating, the next hour, hour and a half, I'm talking to him, I'm telling him that it's okay, that he needs to conquer his fears. I said, look at your little, look at your little uh, cousin, the little girls who are going on it. I mean, I was pouring it on thick. We were watching all of the kids come out, and they would, uh, we would see these little kids. i say, see that little girl right there? She went on it, you can do it. And nothing was really impressing him, And I finally forced him to go on it. And it's kind of become a legendary story in our family. And Mark even remembers it to this day. And so you can see how ironic it is that many, many years later, when he and his girlfriend, Hannah, were deciding, were sharing their bucket list with each other, how ironic it is that one of the things on her bucket list was to skydive skydive. So love does crazy things to you. Um, And so my son gave her the gift of skydiving. And so they were going to go and jump out of a plane voluntarily. (laughs) And so, you know, I, I asked him when he was done, I said, I said, was it as scary as you thought? And he said, it was terrifying. I was mortified. He said that when he was in the plane, you know, you're attached to the guy who jumps. So you're literally attached to him. And the guy was playing it up. He was like, you know what? Right before they jumped, he said, I think I may have forgotten something. (laughs) And then he said, you know what? It probably won't matter. I'm sure the chute will open. You know, and this really playing it up. And, you know, my son is just terrified. And so they both jumped, and we were there waiting for him. My family and a great family in our church, the Pefley family, were all there waiting. And when they landed, my son walked over to his girlfriend, Hannah, and he got on one knee, and he proposed to her. And she said, yes. And I'm thrilled. I mean, this is a wonderful thing. Uh, Great family, great girl, covenant family, raised in the church, raised in this church. And just to see them come together has been a beautiful thing. But this one act of getting down on one knee, of proposing, changes everything. It will have incredible repercussions. Hopefully one day they'll be blessed with children. I mean, I could be a grandfather. I mean, that's just crazy. But one act 
changes everything. And this is a dense part of Scripture. And as I was studying it, I was trying to come up with something simple. And I was reading and listening. And this one guy, he said that when you read this passage, the bottom line is that one act changes everything. And I said, that's it. And the example used was of a, of a writer who I really enjoy. Her name is Ann Voskamp. And she was raised on a farm in a remote part of Canada. And she wrote a book called A Thousand Gifts. And this book was written about her early years. She had lost her sister in a terrible accident. Listen to what she writes. In those first few years of my life, I imagined that my hands curled like cupped hands, acting as a receptacle open to the gifts God gives. But then came the year that I turned four, the year when blood pulled and my sister died, and I snapped shut to grace. In November light, I see my mother and father sitting on the back porch step, rocking her swaddled body in their arms. I press my face to the kitchen window, the cold glass, and watch them, watch their lips move, not with prayers rocking my sister to sleep, but with pleas for a miracle, miraculous waking, a plea for my sister to be whole. It does not come. The police do. They fill out reports. Blood seeps through the blanket that bound my sister. I see that too, even now. She had only strayed into the farm lane for a split second, wandering after a cat. And I can see the delivery truck driver sitting at the kitchen table, his head in his hands. And I remember how he sobbed that he had never seen her. But I still see her, and I can't forget. Her body, fragile and small, crushed by a truck in our farmyard, blood soaking into the thirsty earth. That's the moment the cosmos shifted, shattering any cupping of hands, the consequences of just one act. The consequences for her family were devastating. Her father, who was a leader in the church, her father, who had led the family spiritually, never went to church again. Her mother became sick. Her mother had breakdown after breakdown, nervous breakdowns. Eventually, she was institutionalized. The act, the importance of one act. One act on 9-11 changed the entire world when 19 terrorists ran planes, hijacked planes into buildings and the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and into a field. One act changed everything. It changed the world. It changed politics. It changed people's lives who lost loved ones that day. It changed economies. It changed everything. The enormity of just one act. My son, the morning where they were to jump out of the plane, he called the company, the place where they were skydiving, and he had a couple of questions. And the girl he was speaking to was kind of short with him, was kind of rude to him. Mark, he's not like me. He's a little bit more patient. Sometimes I don't know where he came from. Um, it's just such a gift, probably from Melanie, 98% her, 2% me. But anyway, 
So he's talking to this person on the phone, and he said, you know, you need to consider that people who are using your services are probably nervous, and they probably need some questions answered. And I am doubly nervous because I'm not just jumping out of a plane, but I'm also asking my girlfriend to marry me. He said, so if you could please answer my questions, I'd appreciate it. And so he understood the importance of just one act, the enormity of just one act. One act of unfaithfulness in marriage can change everything. One act of blurting out hurtful words or writing a harsh email or saying the wrong thing on social media can change the course of a relationship of a person's life. One act of hitting a home run or catching a ball in the end zone at the right time can be the difference between winning a championship and not winning a championship. You know, it's been said that character is built one brick at a time very, very slowly, but yet it can be all torn down with just one quick wrong act. One act. The second part of Romans 5 is all about the power of just one action. Adam was told he could eat of any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And for a long while, Adam didn't partake. But he eventually, of course, he ate the forbidden fruit. Paul is saying that when Adam sinned, get this, we all sinned doesn't seem fair. That one act of disobedience of Adam was so important, was so huge, that it doomed the human race. It was passed down to us. Paul is saying there's two heads to the human race. There's Adam and there's Christ. There's two kinds of people. Those who are in Adam, those who are in Christ. There's two families. Those who are descendants of Adam and those who are descendants of Christ. Two fathers. There's Adam and there's Christ. Babies are born into sin. They may look innocent. They may appear innocent. But they're born into a sin nature that is passed down to them from Adam, from that one act. The doctrine of original sin is what it's called. seems hard to believe until you have children. When you have kids, the doctrine of original sin is rather easy to see. Amen? And so the other day, I was in the office, and Tyler, our worship leader, and Gwen, our, our communications director, their daughter, Millie, is two years old, and she is, she is just so precious, so cute, so innocent. And I was sitting at one of the desks out in the, out in the office, and she's sitting in the desk right next to me, and she had um, colored pencils that she was using to color. So it was this bin, this container, this plastic container of a couple hundred colored pencils. And she's using the pencil, and she looks over at me. I see her out of the corner of my eye, and she's looking over at me. And she takes the entire bin of pencils, and she spills them all on the floor. And they go all over the floor. There she is. And so we told her, no, Millie, oh, what are you doing? We picked all the, all the pencils up. Don't do that again. Ha, 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 ha. You know, great disciplinarian I am. 
And so I kept working, and I see her out of the corner of my eye. That's a picture of her, the exact moment, because I took a picture of her because I wanted to capture this moment. And I see her looking at me out of the corner of her eye. She's looking over at me. And she picks up a pencil, and then she holds it out like this. And she looks over at me and smiles, and then she literally does this. She's like, opens her hand, (laughs) drops the pencil on the floor. And she does that over and over again. And it's a silly illustration, but it just shows that she was not taught by anyone to do that. She didn't need to be taught to do that. She was born into that. It seems like such a small thing. It seems like such a small thing for Adam to eat a piece of fruit. I mean, that's such a small, minor disobedience, a little white lie. That one act dooms the entire human race. Adam's sin that we inherit shows us the power of just one act. Adam's act seems like such a small thing. I mean, how can that eating of a fruit, how can that be something that dooms the entire human race? I mean, why is it such a big deal? Well, think about it. Adam was given so much, and so are we. I mean, think about the blessings Adam was given. Here he is in paradise. Here he is with all of these trees around him, all of this food around him. He's given dominion over creation. He's made a leader over creation, a king, if you will, over creation. He's given so many blessings, and he's told, don't eat of this one tree. And what does he do? He eats of the one tree. I mean, that's like us. We're given so many blessings in our lives, so many blessings, and we're like cows in a pasture. You've seen that before. You know where I'm going with this. They have this entire pasture. They have this entire field of grass, and yet they'll stick their head through the fence, through the barbed wire, to eat the grass beyond the fence, and we're the same way. He's given so much, so are we. Adam also was given communion with God. If you read that part of Scripture, I mean, Adam spoke with God. He talked with God. God went looking for Adam after he sinned. We don't know how long Adam was in the garden when he was sinless. Between the time he was told not to eat of that tree and the time he sinned, We don't know how long that was. Sunday school flannel boards tell us that it was like two days later. You know, he's he's, uh, told not to do it, and then he does it two days later. I mean, it could be many, 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 many years. It could be that when it says that Adam was 930 years old when he died, it could be that that started when he ate of the fruit. We just don't know. But yet he gave that all away. He gave communion with God away, and so do we. This morning in worship, this is an opportunity to commune deeply with God. The opportunity to be in a small group and to commune with God through friends, through relationships. The Holy Spirit moving in your life to commune with God. Adam failed to recognize the importance of one act, and we do the same thing. I mean, apply this practically to your life. 
Think of the importance of just one act in your life. Now, I've said this before. If I ended the sermon right here, we'd all go home and try our best to make sure that in every single moment that we make the right decision in that one act. Okay, when I'm here, i got to make this decision. And here, i got to do this. And that's important. I mean, these actions are important. We bring life and encouragement to others. And it's a great application to take away the importance of one act. I mean, one interaction between you and your child could make all the difference. One interaction between you and your coworker, you and your neighbor, one word of encouragement that you could give to someone could be the difference between life and death for them. One impatient response could be the straw that breaks the camel's back in your marriage. One wrong click of the mouse, one gossiping harsh word, one overreaction, one missed opportunity, one missed opportunity to serve and to use your gifts, the importance of one act. But if that's all you take away, then you may succeed for a while, but eventually you will fail. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers in history, was a nothing-but-Jesus preacher. And he wrote this to pastors, Know Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home, never preach again until you have something worth preaching. He also wrote this, A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. The one act of Adam eating the fruit, that act seems so small, seems so insignificant that the entire human race would be doomed. But that one act causes Jesus to go to the cross for our sins. It's so serious that one sin, that one act, your one act, my one act, whatever that is a million times a day, is so serious that it causes Jesus to bleed and die for us. Last week we were singing an awesome new song about Christ and his blood and the power and the forgiveness that we have. And we were overwhelmed by the spirit of the Lord. And one of you began shouting out, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And then it was an appropriate response because of the price that he paid for us, that all of these acts that we think are insignificant, all of those acts got Jesus nailed to the cross. If the only sin had been Adam eating that forbidden fruit, he would have needed to die on the cross. And it isn't just our, our wrong acts, our unrighteous acts, as I said earlier. It's our self-righteousness. It's not just our unrighteousness, but our self-righteousness. We don't just need to be saved from our badness, but we need to be saved from our goodness. And even those inside the church, we need to be saved as well. Because Adam was the first act. Christ was the second and final act. Adam had the first word. Jesus had the final word. Jesus was what we call the second Adam. 
He was the second chance. Theologians say that Jesus picked up where Adam left off before Adam ate the forbidden fruit. He was the second chance, the second Adam. Think about Adam and think about Jesus. Both of them were tempted. So Adam is tempted and he's in paradise. Jesus is tempted and he's in the desert. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the desert before his ministry and he's tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus doesn't eat. He doesn't have any fellowship. He doesn't have anything, no food, nothing. And Satan comes and tempts him at his lowest point, at his hungriest point. And yet Jesus doesn't sin. Adam is tempted in the middle of paradise, in the middle of having it all, and yet he falls. Adam, who is in this garden, he's in this garden of God, this paradise. He has fellowship with God, communion with God. Jesus is in another garden, the garden of Gethsemane, the night that he was betrayed. And he's praying And he's asking if this cup can pass from him. Eventually he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's his plight. Adam, on the other hand, had God coming and saying, where are you? I'm looking for you. And yet he falls. Adam's one defining act was an act of disobedience, of unrighteousness. Jesus' one defining act was an act of obedience, a righteous act. Adam's act becomes our act, and it doesn't seem fair. But it's so clear that we are born into sin. Silly little examples about little kids. Big examples about us and our own sin and how we do the things we don't want to do. It's so clear Adam's act of disobedience had horrible consequences, but I love what Paul says about Jesus' act of obedience compared to Adam's act of disobedience. Listen to it again in that context, verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So in other words, if that one small act of Adam, of eating of the forbidden fruit, caused all of the human race to fall into sin, how much more is this act of Jesus Jesus on the cross. How much more does that act save us? Amazing. Adam's act of disobedience compared to Jesus' act of obedience. Jesus' act of obedience is so much more important than Adam's act of disobedience. Jesus' act of obedience has so many things that happen as a result There's so many consequences, good consequences, to Jesus' act of obedience. You know, Adam's one act of disobedience leads to us being fatherless, leads to us being orphans, leads to us having no father. Jesus' one act of obedience leads to us being adopted into his family, as sons and as daughters, where everything he has, we have. 
Adam's one act of disobedience leads to this downward spiral. I mean, his son Cain kills his other son Abel. It gets worse and worse and worse until the time of the flood where Genesis says that, and God saw that the inclination of the thoughts of their heart were evil all the time. This downward spiral, this flood destroying the earth, that's what Adam's act of disobedience leads to, and it's the same in our lives. It starts with something small, and then there's this downward spiral when we're living in Adam. But Jesus' one act of obedience... Scripture says that it will lead to greater things, that we will do greater things than Jesus did. It leads to old things passing away, new things coming into our life. It leads to the old man being killed more and more and more on his deathbed, and the new man becoming more and more in our lives. It leads to more good things, more sanctification, as opposed to more and more unholiness. Adam's one act of disobedience leads to defending ourselves, leads to the inner lawyer defending ourselves. It leads to explaining ourselves, justifying ourselves. Jesus' one act of obedience leads to humility, leads to admitting when we're wrong, leads to um, us being able to say, I'm sorry, Adam's one act of disobedience leads to shame. I mean, he realized he was naked. So here he is, he's shamed, he's naked. Jesus' one act of obedience takes on our shame. He takes on our nakedness and he clothes us in his righteousness. Adam's one act of disobedience leads to our work, our day-to-day lives being cursed, being cursed to that ground, being cursed to not enjoy our work. Jesus' one act of obedience reverses that curse and leads to us glorifying God and enjoying our lives of freedom, even our day-to-day work. Adam's one act of disobedience leads to keeping score leads to keeping score in our marriages and our relationships. What have you done for me? What have I done for you? It leads to accountants. Jesus' one act of obedience means the accounting is over. It means that we have the full righteousness of Christ. Adam's one act of disobedience leads to spiritual death, that we are dead, that we are spiritually rotting, that we are fully dead, not in need of a pill to bring us back to life, but we are in need of resurrection. We are in the morgue. Our bodies are dead. And Jesus' one act of obedience leads to new life, a new spiritual heart. It allows us to become partakers of the divine nature that is given to us. It gets better. Adam's one act of disobedience, it leads to every single sin being so serious that it nails Jesus to the cross. Jesus' one act of obedience leads to grace that is greater, grace that covers sins. Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. It gets better and better. 
Adam's one act of disobedience leads to unbelief in our lives. It leads to confusion when you are disbelieving, when you are doubting, when you are confused. That is not of Christ. That is of Adam. And that's what that leads to. That is of Satan, the master of deception. Adam, that's what his one act of disobedience leads to. And I know some of you are sitting here this morning and you are confused. You are wondering. You're not sure about all of this. That's being in Adam. Being in Christ in his one act of obedience, it leads to assurance of salvation. Don't you want that in your life? That assurance, that sweet assurance, being like Job, who right in the middle of that book, Job 19, in the middle of that book, literally in the middle of the Bible, He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end he will stand on the earth. That's what his one act of obedience leads to. It gets even better. His one act of disobedience leads to you and me being an enemy of God. Jesus' one act of obedience leads to peace with God. The warring is over. It leads to redemption, reconciliation that we badly need. Adam's one act of disobedience leads to us being bound in sin. Jesus' one act of obedience leads to us being able to fight off every single temptation that we face. Every time we are faced with sin, every time we are faced with temptation, we have the ability, because Scripture says that Jesus faced every temptation and not unto sin. Scripture says that there's no temptation that has tempted us that we cannot overcome in that moment. That's what Jesus' one act of obedience leads to. Adam leads to death. Jesus leads to life. Adam leads to judgment. Jesus leads to righteousness. Adam leads to condemnation. Jesus leads to grace that covers sins. That where sin increases, grace increases. It leads to there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ. And here's one of the best things, is that Adam's sin leads to uncertainty, leads to a future that we can't know. It's an uncertain future. But as was read earlier, Jesus' one act of obedience, it leads to us knowing the future, knowing what the future holds, knowing that he's preparing a place for us, knowing that he knows the plans that he has for us, knowing that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. It leads to knowing that we are more than conquerors. It leads to knowing that nothing can separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, this guy over here, he gets it, you know? 